After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in 2005, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith was working at UNC Chapel Hill. And he wrote a book entitled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of America's Teenagers. Now, I don't know how old you were in 2005, but I personally was a teenager. And so when I think about this book and the work that he wrote nearly 20 years ago, I think about today's adults. This is the millennial generation that he's writing about here for the most part. And he observes many things about what that generation of people think about who God is. The most common belief among people at that time, teenagers at that time, could be described by a term that he coined moral therapeutic deism. Might be one that you have heard of before. It can basically be best described as a combination of God as divine butler and cosmic therapist. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Basically meaning moralistic, be a good person. Therapeutic, you have um, God as, as someone who is meant to be your cosmic therapist. Deism, he's not actually involved in your life but he exists out there somewhere. They believe that God is out there somewhere, that he wants us to be good and nice to each other, that the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself, and God doesn't need to be too involved in your life unless you have a problem. This is probably, from what I have experienced, the most common form of belief in who God is among adults and people around us. It's not simply that we've denied who God is, it's that we have morphed who it is. How does this belief compare with the God that we find in the Bible? Now, this is a very good and important question. If you call yourself a Christian here today, this is something that you must understand. You must understand that you do not get to make up who God is. Most People out there today think about God in kind of a buffet line way. You go through the buffet line, you find the different things that you like, and you load up your plate, and that is who God is. And so they make up their own versions of who they think God is, and that's true for them. But that is not who the true God is. God is not merely an idea but he is a real, personal being. And that is so important. This is the pathway to Christian maturity. That you find your underlying ideas of who God is, you unroot them, and you replace it with who the real God is. 
This is the life of Christianity. This is what the life of faith and repentance looks like. You find where your ideas of who God is are false. You uproot them and you replace them with the true who God is. A few years ago, I was at a conference, a pastor conference, and I met a well-known author, a Christian author. It doesn't matter who it was. Um, This person is hilarious on social media. Like, hilarious. Always posting memes. Just always, like, I'm laughing out loud sometimes with what this person has to say. Then I met this person at this conference. They were nothing like the person that they were online. Nothing like him. He was shy and like almost seemed timid. Online, he was boisterous and would call people out. In person, he seemed like a mouse. Oftentimes, the ideas of who we think God are is not actually who he is. We have these figments of our imagination, this idea of who God is. But have you talked with the real personal being that is the God of the Bible that we know? Today we're continuing our study in the book of Genesis. We've been working through this entire book. And we're in the middle of the Abraham narrative. And at this point his name is still Abram. And what we find here is that Abram is still discovering who God is. It's only been three chapters since Abram first heard the word of the Lord come to him. And we as readers are actually learning who God is through Abram. We're following this man as he's introduced to this personal being who is God. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are all about God's cosmic nature, how he is personal, but how he created everything, and big sweeping um, uh, narratives about the beginning of civilization and of the world. But now we're slowing down to learn who God is on a personal level. And that's what Abram's discovering is, who is this God? And as we read his story and as we learn from him, we learn more and more about who this person personal God is and how he interacts with his people because Abram interacts with a real God who really speaks and really acts. The big question for you today is this, how do you interact with a personal God? How is that different than just interacting with a God who is a mere idea or with a God who might fit the description better of moral therapeutic deism. Two points from this question. How do you interact with a personal God? And the first is by faith and not by works. And the second is through covenant and not contract. By faith and not by works, through covenant and not by contract. Let's jump in. Number one, by faith and not by works. Let's look at the passage. This is how we like to do this. We like to open the scripture and go through it as best we can, verse by verse, or at least idea by idea. And here in verse 1, it says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The word of the Lord came to Abram. What did he do to get the word of the Lord to come to him? Do you see Abram going on a uh, week-long meditation retreat so that God would finally speak to him? No. God came to Abram on his own terms, in his own time, and he spoke to him. 
That is not to say that you cannot call upon the name of the Lord. Because it says very clearly in Scripture that we are to call on the name of the Lord and that he will respond to us. But it also makes it very clear that sometimes God speaks when he wants to speak. And sometimes it's when we're not looking for him to speak to us. And he might have things to tell us when we're not expecting him. And here we have God coming to Abram on his own terms and speaking to Abram at that time. You see, God is not a genie in a bottle that you just go to and and God stays in the bottle until you rub the bottle just the right way. He's not Christina Aguilera here. No, God, sorry, millennial jokes, I guess. Sorry, Gen Z and X and and boomers and everybody else. Um, God doesn't just stay confined until we want him to speak, but sometimes he just has something to say to us. And that's what we have happening to Abram. And what does God say? He says to this, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God reaffirms his promise to Abram time and time again. He must know that Abram is starting to have some doubts. At this point in the narrative, I know it's only been a couple of chapters, but it's been a long time. It's been years and years since the first promise that God would make Abram's name great. It's been decades since the first promise that God would make Abram's name great. And he's probably wondering, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing the thing that you said that you would do? But God says, you can trust me. Verse two, Abram says this, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring. He's just repeating himself now. And and a member of my household will be my heir. It's like in the Old Testament, one of the ways that you would show emphasis is by repeating. Uh, This is like the primary way that they would show emphasis. Instead of saying like better, best, uh, and, and, you know, good, better, and best, um, they would just repeat the word multiple times. So here Abram is really repeating it for emphasis. He's saying it, and he's saying, look, if I die right now, I will have no legacy. Your promise has not stood firm. Instead, some random dude up in Damascus will inherit all of my stuff. I don't, I don't know. I, haven't, I didn't actually look at this. When he was reading it, I was like, I don't know if that guy shows up anywhere else in Scripture. He might, but like, it's not notable if he does. Abram's doubting. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now, how does God respond to Abram's doubts? Does he say, Abram, you're sinning, you're doubting. Get in line. No. He comes to him with a gracious and reassuring word, confirming that he will indeed fulfill his promise and Abram will have children. Look, I know that some of you are plagued by doubts like this. When will God show up? When will my life change? I'm not even sure I believe in God. I don't know what to make of all of this. If you're not, then you have friends that are plagued with doubts. And that's okay. I just want to like, give the disclaimer that this is an okay place to not be okay. It's an okay place to work through your doubts. And the thing is, 
church needs to be that place, or what will people do when they have doubts? They won't go to their Christian community, they'll go to Google. And look, if you've ever Googled an illness, you know that there's a lot of bad things that you can find on Google, okay? It's like, my leg hurts. Oh, it means you have cancer. That's always what it means when you Google it. This is an okay place for you to come with your doubts. It's an okay place to work through those things. God himself is a safe place for you to go with your doubts. And so if you are experiencing doubts today, I encourage you to use the resources available to you, which is a church community, a pastor who will talk to you, people who will talk to you, a a God who's a real personal being, who's not merely an idea, who can give you comfort in your doubts and help you through those things. If you have intellectual doubts about who Christ is, we have a member of our church who has started a website called talkaboutdoubts.com who will get you set up with someone that can answer like every question known to man. And we would love to, he would love to utilize that to help you. God is okay with our doubts. The world actually, it's, it's actually the world that says it's not okay to have doubt. The world says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all of your heart. That's the message that we have in the world. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it with all of your heart. That is the opposite of Christianity, which says it doesn't matter how well you believe as long as you're believing in the right thing. As long as you're moving in the right direction. Because it's God who makes himself known to us. It's not by faith that we interact with God. It's not by works that we interact with God, getting it all right, but it's by faith that we interact with God. But God recognizes Abram's doubt, and so he gives him a gift. And it's a gift of a reminder, of a sign, of a symbol. Verse 5. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now we live in a really urban area and so we have too much light to really see the stars. You can see maybe four or five stars, which is like, that's more kids than any of us want. Um, But (laughs) not for Abram. (laughs) And so he tells him to go and look in the stars. I don't know when the last time you, you got to look at the stars and what type of reminder this would be for Abram. When I was in college, I worked at a small Christian camp in rural Mississippi. This place was so rural, the name of the town that the camp was in was Possum Neck. (laughs) Like only rural Mississippi can get away with a town named Possum Neck, okay? So I was living and working in Possum Neck, and yes, we had some possums around. Um, And we had all these other rural kids coming in. And we would sometimes do stargazing nights. Uh, And it's in the middle of nowhere, so you walk out there. And what we would do is we'd get all the kids to walk out there with their flashlights. We'd go to the middle of the woods, and we'd be like, okay, guys, turn off your flashlights and look up. And it would be like, ooh, and ah. And one time, we had a break from the normal camper that was coming, and we had this church group from New Orleans come. And they were all in their 20s, and so they were a little bit older and boisterous. And... We did the stargazing trip. They wanted to. They were like, we want to see the stars. So we're like, all right, let's go see the stars. So we walked out there with a flashlight, and they're all just kind of talking. 
and these guys, I'm not sure they had ever left New Orleans before. So we get out there to the middle of the woods and we turn off our flashlights and there's not oohs and ahs, but this group of people, they just start screaming. It's like, what is this? They never could imagine the stars being so bright. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but it would be an amazing reminder for Abram, who lives in a rural area, that every evening, without the ambient light that we all are faced with, he gets to look up and have this reminder of who God is. It's kind of like a reminder that my friend Michael, who lives below me, my neighbor, has. Uh, when we first moved in, you know, he had never had people live above him. And so he was like, hey, it's kind of loud up there. I'm like, yeah, there's five of us. And he, and he said, okay, I'm going to use this as a reminder to pray for you. Guys, I'm not sure anybody prays more for my family than Michael. <laughs> it's a perpetual reminder to pray for my family. And this is how God did this for Abram. He gave him a really good reminder. I will be faithful to my promise. I will be faithful. And now we get to one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. What made Abram righteous was not his good deeds, his good behavior, but it was the fact that he believed the Lord. He trusted on the Lord. He believed in a personal God, not just the idea that there is a God. He believed that before. Abram believed that there was a God before this verse. But in this verse, when it says believe, you need to think he trusted the Lord. And Abram trusted the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a different kind of belief than what he had before, even though he had been interacting with God. Even though he had had a sign of trust in the Lord, but now... He is truly placing his faith in Jesus, in God, in who God is. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, and James chapter 2. It's a very important verse that pops up over and over again. I just want to read one of those three for you. Uh, Romans 4, verse 1 through 3. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? The flesh is like a, a, a biblical word for the works by, by what our bodies can accomplish. For if Abram was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, actually it says Abram, right? But you know, we get the impression. It's okay to swap the names back and forth again, defending myself. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram didn't do anything to deserve God's promise because God's people have always related to God through faith and not by works. God's people have always related to God by faith and not by works. This is not something new from the New Testament and that's something that you're gonna see here is that the God that we believe in in the New Testament is the same God as, that has always existed through eternity past, throughout the Old Testament and into the future but this is one of the primary things that we have to replace in our understanding of who God is so that we can grow in our Christian walk is that God does not just relate to us through works, but through faith. 
It's very natural to feel the desire that I have to prove myself to myself or to others or to God. And this is what we call religion. Religion says, if I obey, then God will love me more. If I get my act together, God will be happier with me. When the gospel says, God loves you, so therefore you obey. It is where the obedience comes from. It comes from faith. The faith does not come from obedience. It doesn't work that direction. We relate to God by faith, not by works. The second way that we relate to God, a personal God, is through covenant and not contract. What we see happen next in the text is that God establishes a covenant with Abram. And what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? A covenant is a binding relationship. A contract is a convenient agreement. It's the difference between an apartment lease and a marriage vow. An apartment lease goes like this. You sign a document that says that you pay an exorbitant amount of money each month to a landlord who pretends to take care of the building that you live in. (laughs) That is how the convenient agreement works. Convenient more for some than others. A marriage vow, on the other hand, is very, very different. A lease can be broken. If either party fails to live up to either side of their agreement, the contract can be broken. But with a marriage, things are meant to be different. Marriage is meant to be irrevocably binding. When a couple stand before an assembly of all of their friends and family, they're not merely signing a contract of mutual benefit. They don't stand in front of one another and state the limits of their love. I promise to always be with you as long as you make more than $100,000 a year and weigh less than 170 pounds. I will live up to my commitment. That is not very romantic, is it not? No, they get up there. And what do they say? For better or worse, through richer and poorer, through sickness and health, till death do us part. That's a covenant. And what I found after doing many of your weddings, (laughs) praise the Lord, and uh, many others, and getting to do premarital counseling, and my wife and I uh, have done several of those together, and I can't tell you the number of times that, you know, a young couple, starry-eyed, they leave our home, and Megan and I just look at them and look at each other, and we think, well, they'll figure it out. Because here's the reality. When you get up there to pledge yourself to another human being, you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. No idea. No idea. <laughs> and, and if you did have any idea, that wouldn't necessarily be a covenant. That would be like a contract. If you knew exactly what you're getting yourself signed up for. But the beauty is the covenant. That's the point. Christopher Watkin, in a book he recently wrote, he points out that a contract draws up the limitations while a covenant says whatever it takes. And he actually gives the illustration of the Avengers in in, in Endgame. 
where they come together and they say whatever it takes. And what you don't see in that movie is Tony Stark standing up and saying, I pledge to spend up to $1 million to bring half the world's population back. No, that would be a contract with very limited uh, arrangement, a convenient arrangement there where you know the limits. No, instead what the Avengers say is whatever it takes, whatever it takes. There's no bigger commitment than that. A covenant is based on commitment. A contract is based upon a detailed cost-benefit analysis. Watkins puts it like this. He says, the goal of covenant is intimacy, friendship, communion, the richest of interpersonal relationships in which persons are persons to the full as the communion between them. And this is how our God relates to us. Not, I'll hold up my end if you hold up your end, but instead through covenant, not through contract. Verse 7, here's how it works. He gives us the story. And the Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all of them, and he brought all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. The first thing I notice here is like, what? (laughs) What's happening? Because there's not enough information, really, for us to get it from a modern standpoint. God commands Abram to go get these animals. But before God, God doesn't say anything about cut those animals in half. Abram knows what's up. He shows up and he's like, oh, we're doing it. We're doing this. You said the magic animals, the specific animals. I'm going to go get those, and I know what happens next. And so when he shows up with those five animals, he starts cutting them in half. And he lays each half on either side, so they're against one another, meaning one half is over here and one half is over here, almost making like an aisle. And he doesn't cut the birds because that's not how you do it. (laughs) This is a covenant ceremony. And to us, it's bizarre, but it's the way that ceremonies would work. What you would do is you would cut the animals in half like this. You would form an aisle, and then each party of the agreement would walk down the aisle. And so you would basically say, I promise to live up to my end of the agreement, and here I am walking through these animals. And the reason why I'm walking through the animals is because if I fail to live up to my agreement, may what happened to them happen to me. I am that committed to living up to it. And so what would happen is both parties would walk through the the animals. I bet your landlord would return your phone call if that's what you did at the beginning of the agreement. And sometimes when there was a power discrepancy, just the underling would walk through the, the animals. So if a king is making a covenant to one of his people, they might do the same ceremony to make it very binding, but then he would just have his peasant walk through the animals. And so that's almost no doubt what Abram thinks is about to happen here. It's like, I'm about to commit myself to something. God wants me to make a promise to him. Verse 11. 
And when, the, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Adam drove them away. I love the Bible. There's no reason for that verse to be in there at all. It, it makes no difference. The only reason why it's in there is because it happened and it's part of the story. It's like a little detail that's like, hey, this is unnecessary. But sometimes when you're telling a story, there's an unnecessary detail. <laughs> verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, this is shocking to an original here because we are also expecting Abram to walk through these carcasses. But God puts Abram to sleep. God's not going to let Abram walk through the carcasses. It's shocking. God's the king. He should have had Abram walk through the carcasses. No, Abram's going to sleep. What happens next? And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This is the same dreadful and great darkness that we see happen at another time when God is communicating with his people. On the top of Mount Sinai, as they're receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord, dreadful and great darkness cover over them. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. These words, smoking fire pot and flaming torch, these words are found again in Exodus at the top of Mount Sinai when God appears as a smoking flame, a smoking pot and a flame. And if you remember, God's presence was with the people of God through the desert, the Sinai desert wilderness. And how did God appear as he led his people in the wilderness? But as a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke during the day. These symbolize the presence of God himself. And so God himself is walking through the carcasses. God himself is making the covenant to Abram. It's as if God is saying, Abram, I will bless you. And if I don't, may my immortality become mortality. May what happened to these animals happen to me. And because God is the only one who walks through the carcasses, he's actually taking both sides of the oath. He's saying, I will bless you. And if I don't, may this happen to me. And Abram you will obey me. You will listen to me. You will have faith in me. And if you don't, may what happened to these animals happen to me. See, that is what God's promising. He's not saying, you live up to your end, I'll live up to mine. He's saying, you live up to your end, I'll bear your penalty if you don't. I live up to my end, I'll bear the penalty if you don't. He's taking it all himself. When we think about the God of the Old Testament, oftentimes we think about him being this cruel, quick-tempered God. But look, replace that idea in your mind. It's the same God that we know from the New Testament, who we know as the man, Jesus Christ, who hung on a wooden cross and wore a crown made for a king in a mocking way, a crown made of thorns, whose cross was labeled King of the Jews, in a mocking way. And at the noon hour, as he hung on the cross, a terrible and deep darkness covered all the land. And in that moment, God fulfilled his covenant to humanity. You see, his body was torn for our iniquities. His blood was shed for us all. He bore the penalty 
for Abram's unfaithfulness. And as children of God, as children of Abram, he also bore your punishment as his body was torn and broken on the cross. Arkad keeps his covenant. He keeps his promise. He is a personal God. He is not just good vibes. He is not helpless. He is all-powerful and good. You can trust him with anything, church. You can trust him with anything. That is who he is. He is with you through better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. And it all just begins at death in many ways. Because at death, you get to see him in full. He did whatever it takes to redeem us to himself. Friends, when was the last time you got personal with this personal God? When was the last time that you shared your heart with him? When was the last time that you spoke to him, not as if he's just a grandfather in the clouds withholding cookies from you, but when was the last time that you talked to him and exercised your faith and trusted in him and heard from him and sought him and allowed his words to sit on your heart? When was the last time that you sought his face and he comforted you? church, you can trust this God. Replace your ideas of who he is, that he's this withholding and cruel tyrant, and put in there the true God who keeps his covenants, who has kept his covenant, who has come in the form of a man, and whose body was broken on your behalf, so that you can have peace with him. Right now is your opportunity. Right now. Over the next song, we're going to be taking a communion meal. And it represents Christ's body being broken for us and his blood being shed for us. We're being reminded of what he's done for us. And as we take that communion meal, before you come forward, potentially, this is an opportunity to get right with this God. Don't come and receive this meal unless you're right with him. Unless you have that relationship If it's been a long time since you've talked to God, maybe you just take a moment and say, God, I still believe. Help my unbelief. Help me. I need you. I want you. I will trust in you. No matter what I'm going through, I will trust. God, we, we trust you. For many of us, it's been too long since we talked with you, too long since we heard your voice, too long since you spoke. But God, we pray that you will make yourself known to us today, that we would hear you, that we would trust in you, that we would love you. God, help us to come to you during this meal. God, we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross, bearing our penalty and helping us to have a relationship with you. God, we pray that we would relate with you through faith and not works, through covenant and not contract, that you would help us to understand your grace and your truth because you are the way, the truth, and the life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.